If you have your Bible this morning, I invite you to turn to the penultimate book of the New Testament. That is the one next to the last one, the book of Jude. And if you don't have your Bible this morning, you will uh, find it, if you're using one of ours, on page 1027. Legan Duncan is pastor of the First Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi. And several years ago, while he was in seminary, uh, he says that there was a student uh, that was there with him from Africa, specifically the country of Malawi. His name was Augustin Mfume. I hope I got that right. If not, apologies to you, Augustin, if you ever hear this. Uh, and uh, Legan Duncan said that Augustin was there on part of a work-study agreement, so that part of his tuition uh, was uh, not was deferred from him. He didn't have to pay it because of his working on campus. And one of the things that he was supposed to do, one of his jobs was to sweep the floors of the dormitory and clean the bathrooms each and every day. And Duncan says that they were together as students. They were literally next door in the same dormitory for two years before he found out who Augustine really was. He was, in fact, a leader in the Senate of the Presbyterian Church in Malawi. He had served as the pastor of churches with thousands of members. And yet Duncan said, all I knew him as was the humble, godly Christian who swept the floors and cleaned the toilets in the seminary. He was a servant. Now, friends, that is humility. That is godly humility. And this morning, we are going to look at this book of Jude, and it is written by one who has that same kind of humility. If you look at chapter 1, you will see that the author identifies himself as Jude, specifically Jude who is a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Now, that seems normal enough until you ask the question, which James? There's several in the New Testament. Which one is it? Who is he the brother of? Well, frankly, only one is really prominent enough in the Bible that he would just have to say James and not give us any other identifier in order for us to know who that is. It was James, uh, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, the half-brother of Jesus Christ. So if James is the half-brother of Jesus Christ and Jude is also the brother of James, that means Jude is also the half-brother of Jesus Christ, the son of Joseph and Mary. But notice he doesn't say that, does he? He's mentioned in Matthew 13, by the way, if you want to look that up later and read about him. He was one who did not believe in Jesus until after the resurrection. But notice what he says here. He does not say a brother of Jesus. He says a brother of James and a servant, a slave of Jesus Christ. Now, I have to say at this point in my life, I'm not as humble as Jude was when he wrote this. If Jesus was my half-brother, I would start off all my correspondence something like Jude, uh, or John as it were, the brother of Jesus Christ who is the Savior of the world, creator of the universe. I mean, I would perfect the art of name dropping. It would be obvious to I want everybody to know that is my bro, all right? But that's not Jude. That's not Jude. He is a man of deep godliness, deep humility, and he says, the greatest privilege in my life, much like Paul, the one thing I will boast of is that I am able to serve my master, Jesus Christ. He wasn't just a brother to Jude. He was his master. He was his God. And this morning, that deep humility we need to see in Jude does not make Jude a wimp. Very often when we talk about someone who is meek, we talk about someone who is humble. We think of them as a pushover. 
We think of them somewhat, we think, especially as guys, we think of them as somebody we would not want to Im imitate and be like. Nevertheless, that's not who Jude was. Jude was a fighter. He is a fighter and he is writing to train God's people how to fight. He tells the recipients of this letter, most likely a large group of churches spread out over a large area. He tells them why he is writing in verse 3. Uh, follow along as I read it. He says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend, to fight for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Jude says, I wanted to write something on the doctrine of salvation. I want to write this, this nice little piece that would have been an encouragement to you, that would have brought joy to your heart as it reminded you all the benefits, all of the mercies that we have as the people of God saved in Jesus Christ. But the circumstances would not allow it. The times are too serious. He says there have been false teachers who are creeping in and they are denying the Lord Jesus Christ. More than that, they are promoting not just false teaching, but a false way of living. A kind of lifestyle that is steeped in, in sensuality and immorality. And he says, we must fight against it. I'm not just writing you to tell you about the salvation we have, but I'm telling you how to fight for it. How to fight for the one true faith about Christ and the salvation He gives His people. Now as we think about that as the message of Jude, we see that's an incredibly relevant message today, don't we? I mean, what have we seen over and over again in the New Testament that one of the ways Satan tried to destroy the church even early on was by setting in false teachers to corrupt the message that Jude says was given once for all to all the saints. Don't expect something new. Don't expect some, some new twist. Don't expect some new add to the story. No, the gospel was given once and it's sufficient now for all time. And yet we also see today, don't we, so many people trying to come in offering us something new, offering us something different. And ultimately, it's not healthy for us. It's not good for us. In fact, we must fight against it. And so here is this little letter, both profoundly theological and practical as we will see this morning. And frankly, if we were to, to try and uh, mine out all of its gold, it would probably take us about five or six weeks. And given the nature of our series, we don't have that this morning. My original intention was to read the entire letter and just outline and to make some comments, but there's just too much here. So what we're going to look at is just a few verses at the end, and maybe one day we'll come back to Jude. Some of you that have been here for a long, long time, over seven years, know that I've already preached through Jude once, and having read through it and studied it again this week made me want to preach it all the more again. But this morning we're just going to look at verses 17 through 23 as our text. Jude says, You must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, In the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. May God bless the reading of His Word. 
As we focus in on these closing verses of Jude's letter this morning, we want to see what it means to fight for the faith and how to actually go about doing it. So this morning, as it were, tape up your hands, put on your boxing gloves, and get ready for your training. Because this is not something that uh, we just say, that it's nice. This is not the kind of sermon you say, that was a nice little encouragement, and now we're going to go home and go on our merry way. Now, this is, this, is the, this is the fight club, as it were. This is, this is basic training. Here is where we are learning how to persevere as Christians and to help enable the church itself to persevere. So Jude tells us to do three things this morning, three ways to fight for the faith. First, we are to fight for the unchanging faith. We are to fight for the unchanging faith. A well-known saying that applies to many areas, though especially in warfare, is this, to be forewarned is to be forearmed. Even if you can't prevent the attack, just knowing that it's going to come is going to help you be more ready for it. And the same is true in spiritual warfare as much as it is in physical fighting. By looking at Jude's warning, we can be ready for our we can be ready ourselves, more prepared to fight for the faith when it comes. So what is that warning? It's actually the reminder of another warning. He says, you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. They say to you, in the last times there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. Jesus says, you remember that the apostles warned you years ago, there will be a time to fight. Well, guess what? That time is now. Both inside and outside the church, these people have come to attack they are here. It is now time to ring the bell, to put on the gloves, and get in the ring. What kind of people are they? First, he says, they're scoffers. They're scoffers. They come into the church acting like they're, they're believers. They come in acting as if they're one of you, and, and yet it's not long before they begin to scoff at the very things they say they believe. They scoff at those cardinal doctrines, most likely dealing with Jesus Christ himself. They poke fun at the tenets that form the bedrock of our beliefs. They look at the things taught about Christ and say it is foolish to believe those things in our day and age. Well, not much has changed, has it? We still see that today. We especially see it from the outside, don't we? Just pick up a book by Christopher Hitchens or Richard Dawkins, hardcore atheists who mock Christianity every day of the week and twice on Sundays. Brutal, brutal things are said by these men uh, about Jesus, ridiculing Him and those who worship Him. But even worse than those like that outside the church are those who would say the same kind of things on the inside of the church. And there are people like that. There are people like that. And if you don't know of any now, I don't know of any now, Jude says, be warned, they will come. They will come. As our church grows, it will attract the loonies. Okay? And, and they will say all kinds of things. And the question is, what are you going to do with those kind of people? A, for, a more primary question is, why would they do this? Why would they mock Jesus, the man that they claim to love and to worship? Well, Jude says it's because they're not saved. Listen to what he says. They are worldly people devoid of the Spirit. Not just not walking in the Spirit, not just living like they should. They, they don't have the Spirit of God. And if you don't have the Spirit of God, then you're not one of God's children. You don't become God's children and get the Spirit later. It is, a, it is an, an all-in-one inclusive package. You receive adoption, justification. You begin the process of sanctification, have experienced regeneration by the reception of 
the Spirit of God. So these are people that aren't saved, but more than that, they exult in their sinfulness. They are worldly. He says that they follow their own godly passions. These are the Charlie Sheens of the church, as it were. Did you see this interview recently? He's basically done what most people, uh, I'm surprised, have not done sooner, and that is they have openly and publicly embraced their life of sin. They will do things in private, but they won't make them public. And basically, Sheena said, look, I'm tired of living a double standard. I'm going to tell you, I love, you don't call it sin, uh, but I love sin, and I'm not ashamed of it. And so he brags about the wild parties he's at, that he, he, he took so much cocaine that he says it would have killed a normal person, but I was able to survive and it was a wild party. It was great. He talks about not just one, but two live-in girlfriends that he has. And in all of this, he just thinks, I've, I've arrived at the good life. Now, to be fair, we shouldn't just look at people like Sheen as our whipping boys for moral pontifications. We should pray for them. Nevertheless, there are going to be times when probably not as in your face as that, but there will be people who come into the church who have a similar desire to live by their ungodly passions. They're just going to do, want to do whatever lustful things are in their heart. And Jude says, when you see a man or woman who cares nothing about gospel-driven morality, they care nothing about the pursuit of holiness, we understand if you can't look at their life and trust it, you shouldn't trust what they teach either. You shouldn't trust what they teach either. Because ultimately, an immoral lifestyle points to a larger problem in their relationship with God. Loved ones, is not just enough to know that they're out there and to avoid them. Jude says we must be proactive. We must contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. We have to fight for the truth, not new truth, not an open-ended truth, but the same truth that Peter and Paul and James and John taught those first Christians, the same truth that has been taught to all of God's people from the beginning and will continue to be taught until the return of Christ. So the question is, do you know the truth? Do you see yourselves as a theologian? Not in the professional sense, not in the ivory tower sense, but as someone who knows the theology of the faith. Can you tell someone this is what Christianity is about? Not exhaustively, but could you sketch in the basic outline and know it well? Do you know it well enough to smell a phony? You know, I, I don't know if it's true or not, but I've been told that people in the counterfeiting department in our country really don't spend that much time looking at counterfeit bills. Instead, what they do is handle the real thing all day. They touch it, they feel it, they look at it, they smell it. Some of them apparently even taste it. From what I've heard on the dollar bill, no thanks. Um, and so immediately, something false comes in and says, no, 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 this is not right. So, I, you know, test it out. I can just feel it is different. And the question is, do you know the faith that well? Do, do you love it so much that you can tell when something isn't right? Are you receptive to the Spirit because you filled up your mind with the truth? And He says, that doesn't match up with what you know. And you said, yeah, I know. Let's reject it. Let's reject it. Jude puts it in black and white. If you don't care now, you should. God wants you to care. Jude, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells you what God wants. And he's telling you, fight for the unchanging faith. He's telling you, be concerned about the purity of biblical teaching in the church. It is your 
personal, not just corporately as a church, it is that, but your personal responsibility to help uphold the historic biblical Christian doctrine. Jude says it is. Not just the elders, but every believer who claims the name of Christ. So young people, do you realize that it's your responsibility to fight for the faith? Do you understand that it is part of your calling as God's people to contend for the faith once, once for all delivered to the saints if you claim the name of Christ, if you claim to be a Christian? You could be in high school or college or graduate school. You could be a young adult just starting out on your career. You could be middle-aged or a grandparent or a great-grandparent. If you are a Christian, if you look to Christ and say it is because of His life, death, and resurrection alone that I am able to be made right with God. And it was only because of His shed blood that my sins have been atoned for. It was only because He lived a perfect life and it was imputed to me when I placed my faith in Him that I can be right with God. Then you're His people. You are His child. And He says you must be ready to fight. So as we fight for the faith, there is this outward focus. We are to be on the alert for false teachers. This doesn't mean that we... Take every little thing that someone disagrees with us about and go to war. Okay, We're looking at the essential things here. Uh, the things that determine whether or not you're in or out of the faith. Okay, So in other words, as, as strongly as we would feel that we have a biblical understanding of believer's baptism, the, the godly Presbyterian down the road would not say, fight because you're ungodly and you're, you're a heretic and you're going to die and go to hell. No, 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 no. Uh, that's not the kind of things that we're talking about. We're not talking about end times issues. We're not talking about whether you should public school your kids or homeschool your kids or not school them at all, although I think the last option we probably realize is not right. No, we're talking about the historic Christian faith, that we are to have an outward focus ready, expecting false teachers to come who will mock the truth and spread false theology with an immoral lifestyle, and we are going to be ready to fight against that. But more than that, Jude also says there is to be an inward focus when it comes to contending for the faith. So secondly, we are to fight for a persevering faith. We are to fight for a persevering faith. The fight for the faith is not just an external fight, it's personal. We have to engage in the fight on the level of our own heart. Look at what he says in verse 20 and 21. You, beloved... Building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Both in the opening and the ending of the letter, Jude assures his readers of God's sovereign care over their souls. He says in verse 1 that they are beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. God loves His people and He keeps them secure for the sake of His Son. How can He do this? We're told in verse 24, because He is a God who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. The security of the believer ultimately rests in God and in His love for you. Now Jude is saying, keep yourselves in the love of God. That is, live in that security. Live in such a way that you are immersed in a tangible, experiential sense of God's love for you by striving to continually take hold of Him. Work at cultivating a deep love for God by delighting in His love for you. Why? Because you won't be taken in by false teaching that way. You won't be taken in by those who live in liberality, indulging the passions of 
their, their passion for sin, you won't fall in the fight of faith because you will know God is better. Your heart will say, I don't need those things. The God that the Bible teaches me about, the God that I know who loves me and is even keeping me secure right now, He's better than what you're offering. He's, he's more than the God that you're holding up to be worshipped. There was one man who teaches a view of, of God that is often labeled open theism. He says that, uh, and many do this unfortunately, say God does not know the future. Because we are free creatures, God couldn't possibly know the future. The future is unknowable because we can do whatever we want. So how could God know it? At any moment, we could decide to, to, to put our left sock on before our right sock. And so, so God can't know. He can make good guesses because He's old and wise. But He can't know with certainty. And therefore, the fall took Him by surprise. Didn't see that one coming. So we had to initiate plan B of Christ. Now we could uh, talk about that one for just verse after verse after verse that shows it to be absolute rot. Uh, I'll, just, I'll just give you one. Jesus doesn't just say, Peter, you're going to deny me. He says, Peter, you're going to deny me after the rooster crows. Not one crow, not two crows, but three crows. Man, that is a really good guess, Jesus. I mean, my goodness, that's a good guess. You, you come to Vegas with me, let's, let's roll the dice because we got good odds, right? No, it's stupid. He knows. He is God. He knows everything. Past, present, and future. But think about the implications of that. So this pastor who believes this tells this, this, this young woman who, who, who is believed from a young age she is called to be a missionary. And she finds a young man in college who says he also believes he is called to be a missionary. And so together they begin to plan out their life as husband and wife on the mission field, uh, giving their lives over to God. And then, and then just, just after their graduation, before their marriage, before they're about to, to be commissioned as missionaries, he cheats on her and has an affair and breaks the whole thing off. She's crushed. She's devastated. She's like, I, you know, I thought that I prayed and I thought that, that I had all the green lights from God saying to marry this man. And here's the pastor's response. You know, God's just as shocked as you are. He didn't see that coming. He, he, he told you to marry him because as far as he could see, as far as he could see, that guy was real. And so God's just as sad as you are and he grieves with you. Does that bring comfort to your heart? Wouldn't mind. I want the kind of God who says, He saw it coming, and He's still going to do something in your life. In fact, He's going to take this horrible, disgusting sin, and He's going to bring something infinitely good and glorious from it, because He's an all-wise, all-sovereign, all-powerful God, and nothing takes Him by surprise. And you say, well, how do you know that, you, that that's who God is? Because Peter tells us in Acts chapter 2, when he looks out to the Jewish people and he tells them, this Christ you crucified, along with Pontius Pilate and the Romans, and this heinous act, the most despicable sin imaginable, the murder of God's own son, this happened according to the perfect plan and foreknowledge of God the Father. So I don't care if it's a car accident, I don't care if it's cancer, I don't, I don't care if, and I pray that it would never happen, and my kids die and go to hell. But at the end of the day, I could say, God, you are sovereign, you are just, and you are good, and if I don't have that, I don't have anything. I don't have anything. Now, how am I going to do that? I have to keep myself in the love of God. I'm going to have to know Him well and be assured of His affection for me so that when I hear things like open theism, I don't say, oh, yeah, that sounds good sounds good and I, and I drift into ignorance 
and I drift into false belief and into sin. So how do we do that? How do we keep ourselves in the love of God? That's the, that's the central command in these two verses. And then, and then Jude tells us three ways that we are to do that. First, he says, building yourselves up in your most holy faith. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Now, what does it mean to build yourselves up in the most holy faith? Well, frankly, some of you are going to be disappointed because it's the Sunday school answer. It says, read and know the Bible. Just read and know the Bible. The thing that we know we should do, we're always told to do, but somewhere along the line, so many of us never seem to do, is read the Bible and grow in a deeper knowledge of the Christian faith. And yet that's the very thing that we're supposed to do. That is the essential element, one of them anyway, of living the Christian life. My senior year in college, there was a, a choral men's group that came uh, to do a, a concert at the college. And there was a block of tickets made available to students for free. You just had to go and show up and get them. And um, the group was named Chanticleer, and it's all these guys in tuxes, and, you know, there's no instruments. It's all just, you know, them singing, and I'm thinking, oh, I don't know. You know, that sounds kind of boring, frankly, you know. And uh, my uh, roommate, who was a music major, he had to go, or else he would get docked for class credit. And so I said, okay, we'll go. And we asked this, uh, you know, uh, freshman guy, he said, well, why don't you pick up some tickets? And he got us great tickets, like, on row six, and we're like, you know, we're right here. And... Uh, I had very low expectations going into that concert, and I walked away with my mind blown. I mean, these guys did things with their voices I did not know was humanly possible. It was amazing. They sang all kinds of music, from, uh, from uh, slave songs to, uh, to um, uh, uh, the uh, monk monkish chants to, I mean, just all over the place. They even slipped in a Beatles song in there. I mean, and they were doing it, no instruments, pitch perfect, uh, like 12 of these guys, voices just going everywhere. It was absolutely amazing. And afterwards, as we're heading out, uh, we go out for uh, to Young's Jersey Dairy to get some, get some ice cream, and, and Jason just cannot, my roommate, cannot stop talking about these guys. Why? Well, because as impressed as I was, this guy's a music major. He understands music at a much deeper level than I probably ever will. And, and so the nuances of what they were doing up there was not lost on them. The fact that there's probably only 100 people that we know of professionally in the world that could do what, this, what these 12 guys did on stage. But the complexity of the arrangements is such that nobody would dare do that. And later we found out. Why were these guys so impressive? Well, we, what we got to hear for free, other people pay $75 to $100 for the nosebleed seats to hear them in concert. I mean, these guys were the real deal. And yet as much as I appreciated it, Jason's appreciation was so much more. Because his deeper knowledge of music led to that deeper appreciation for it. And frankly, that's the same thing that Jude tells us here. The deeper our appreciation is of the scriptures, the deeper our appreciation will be of God Himself. So the more you know the Bible and its theology, the deeper your understanding of God and His work will become, and the more sincere and deep your love for Him will be. So here's the reality. Do you want to know God lightly? Do you want to just dip your toe in the water of a knowledge of Him? If you just want to love Him just a little bit, then treat the Scriptures lightly. Don't read them much. Maybe, maybe a verse a month, if that. But if you want to know God deeply, if you want to love Him deeply, then the simple answer is to drink deeply from His Word. It will build us up in our understanding of who He is, strengthen our faith and our love in Him, and enable us to fight the fight 
of faith. Secondly, Jude says that we are to be praying in the Holy Spirit in order to keep ourselves in the love of God. Now, some of you, again, are thinking, boy, this sounds cool. This sounds like mystical. Who says tongues? You know, what, is, what are we talking about here? Well, again, I'm not going to deny its coolness, but uh, frankly, some of you are going to be disappointed. Praying in the Spirit is just it is something that we should just do. It should be something we should already be doing. You understand that the Spirit wants you to pray. Whenever, whenever, whenever uh, Paul talks about us crying out to God, Abba, Father, which you realize that you know, there's nothing sacred about saying Abba and Father together. That's just Abba's the Aramaic, and he gives the translation right after it, Father. So whenever the Spirit, uh, or whenever we're to cry out to Father in prayer, it's always because we have the Spirit of God. He is the one, upon His reception, who creates with this, within us the confidence and the desire to go before God and call Him Father. So the Spirit is there to lead us into a sense of prayerfulness. And believers cannot hope to keep themselves in the love of God if they do not depend upon Him in prayer. One cannot sustain a love for God if we do not have a relationship with Him. And a relationship with God is either forged or frayed by our prayer life. Have a strong prayer life and your relationship with God grows. Have a weak prayer life and your relationship with God will shrivel up like a dead thing. Specifically, praying in the Spirit means something like praying in Jesus' name, I think. Well, you know, we say, and in Jesus' name, amen. Well, what did, what did we pray for when we prayed that? If we prayed in such a way that we forgot what Jesus modeled for us, if we forgot what He wants from us and what He commands for us to do, then saying in Jesus' name at the end of the prayer is akin to taking the Lord's name in vain. It's meaningless. It doesn't, you know, it's not, it's not like as we're praying, we're, we're, you know, we've knocked the arrow back and, and, and we're, we're pulling and pulling and pulling and saying in Jesus' name, that's what lets it go straight up to heaven. No. Saying in Jesus' name means if Jesus himself were here praying with us, he would have approved of the prayer. Because we're praying for the kind of things that he wants us to pray for. I think it's the same thing if we are to pray in the Spirit. It means we are praying in a way in which we are led by Him and praying for things that are consistent for what He wants to do in our lives and in the world around us. So how do we do that? How do we know what is consistent with the Spirit, what He wants to pray for? Go back to the previous point. Read the Bible. I mean, He is the one who inspired its authorship. Do we want to know what God wants for our lives, what He wants for the world? Then just read it and then pray for those things. That's part of praying in the Spirit. More than that, though, let me just say this. Practically speaking, you're not really going to be able to pray by the Spirit if you're just casually walking through the day praying for needs that come up here and there. I'm not saying you shouldn't do that, but you should do more than that. Partly because you'll just end up praying for yourself and your family. I mean, if all I did was just... Was just uh, sit around and, and, or, and you know, live life, and if someone came up, pray about that. It would, it would be stuff about me and my kids, and that would be it. I wouldn't have time to be thinking about other things. But God calls us to pray for so many other things, doesn't He? What we need is to, to follow the example of Jesus and actually set aside some time by ourselves to think about the things that God actually wants us to pray about. Now, I say that as one who has three kids, another one on the way, a pregnant wife, two jobs, a boatload of reading and teaching to do. But if I really want to pray, i got to give something up. Might be, heaven forbid, television, movies, video games. Good night. How do I go a week without that? 
might be Facebook, might be Twitter, might be the internet. It might just be telling my kids, you need to play by yourself for an hour. And daddy's going to be in the next room in case one of you gets hurt or something. Okay? No, what it means is I'll probably give up sleep and get up before they get up or stay up later after they go to bed. My whole point is, at the end of the day, God's worth it. God's worth taking 30 minutes out of your day, an hour out of your day. Why is it that we rail so much about giving a tithe of our money, but we never think to tithe our time? You ever thought about that? We, we never say, I want to give you 10% of my week. If we did, we would say, it, it'd, be, it'd be like from like 11 p.m. to 7 a.m., right? You can have that time, God. You can have all of it because we're snoozing. But if we really love God, we're going to talk to Him. We're going, to, we're going to, to call out to Him because we need Him in our lives. We need His grace to pull us along and to keep us in His love. Finally, Jude says, we are to keep ourselves in the love of God by waiting for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Like so many of the New Testament writers, Jude is urging his readers, look beyond your present circumstances. Don't just look in the now, take the long view. The, the world has been around for thousands of years and it could be thousands more. Don't, don't just think about the next five minutes. Don't just think about the last 30 minutes. Instead, think about the mercy that leads to eternal life. Think about what is going to come one day with the return of Christ. Jude says that these false people that are coming in, they're causing divisions and disruptions to the church. How easy would it have been for those people to just think about those divisions and those disruptions and get so discouraged? And what happens when you get discouraged? Have you been discouraged as a Christian before? I have, and I'll tell you what happens. You drift away from God. You get discouraged and you think, well, I'm not going to come to church. I'm, I'm too discouraged. And you don't. And you think it's just one week. You think it's just one Wednesday or whatever it is, one Sunday school. And then it's another, and then it's another, and then it's another. You say, I'm too discouraged to pray today. I'm too discouraged with my Bible today. And suddenly three months have gone by and you haven't cracked the book open. You've, you've not been on your knees. And discouragement leads to drifting. And the solution to discouragement is not just to focus on your problems, but to focus on the day that is coming when the mercy of God will be poured out in its fullness, knowing that even now, that even now, mercy is flowing from that day into the present. That what God has promised in its fullness then is even known partially now. Tom Schreiner summarizes it well when he says this, one of the means by which we continue in our love for God is if we continue to long for the day when Jesus Christ will show us His mercy, when He will grant us the gift of eternal life, and will, we will be perfected forever. Those who take their eyes off their future hope will find their love for God is slowly evaporating, and it will be evident that their real love is for the present age. I don't want my love to be for the present age. I want my love to be for the God who saved me. Therefore, I will strive to keep myself in the love of God fighting for the faith even in my own heart by building myself up in my understanding of the faith, by praying in the Holy Spirit, and by looking forward to the coming day. Now, so far we've seen the fight for the true faith is against those who would pervert it on the outside, either with false teaching or an obvious ungodly lifestyle. We've seen how we ourselves should be fighting uh, for us and for our own hearts. What about those around us? What about those around us sitting in the pew? Or perhaps not sitting in the pew. Maybe those that aren't here today. I, I don't know. What about them? This is the last thing, and we'll look at it quickly in verses 22 through 23. We are to fight for those struggling in the faith. 
We are to fight for those struggling in the faith. Jude says, remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles. He says, keep yourselves in the love of God. Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Jude says here are three kinds of people who are getting trapped in this false faith and you're not just fighting against the bows that proclaim it. You're not just fighting for yourself. You're fighting for your brothers and sisters too. First he talks about those who doubt. They have become confused by the false teaching. They're not bought at hook, line, and sinker. But they're wavering. They don't know what they should believe. Do we go with what we've heard? Do we go with what the false teachers say? And as Christians, we can't just blow people off that are in that situation. We can't just ignore them. We can't say, ah, it's no big deal. Just pray. It'll be fine. And we just can't do that. He says, have mercy on them. That means care for them. Get connected to them. Be concerned for them. Show compassion towards them. Pray with them and pray for them. Don't leave them out to dry. Go to them and encourage them to stay strong in the fight for the faith, even in their own hearts. But then Jude says, what about those? There are those also who are near the fire. He says, save others by snatching them out of the fire. Who are these people? I think it's those who have already bought into the false teaching. They just saw it as too appealing. They've saw it as too convincing. They've fallen under the intruder's spell and their situation is more serious. They've begun to embrace bad theology and live a life of careless sin. How do you deal with people like that? Again, there's the danger just to ignore them or dismiss them. Say, I don't know why they're living their life like that. I ain't got time for that. I ain't got time to deal with people like that. They just need to get their mind right and live holy lives. You ever thought that or heard that before? And Jude says, no, 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 no. You go and you save them from the flame. You have mercy on them by snatching them out of the fire. It's like, it's like a little kid who's running straight for the campfire. You don't just say, well, he'll learn once, won't he? No, you get up and you run across and you dive on him. And you, you say, don't do that ever again. You're going to scare me to death. You're going to get burned. And when you see people getting wrapped up in a lifestyle, you just say, well, I don't know. You know, I don't tell them wrong. No, you go and you say, hey, come on, wake up. What are you doing? You're on a path that's going to lead to hell. Come back. Come back to the true faith. Don't buy into that garbage. Finally, there are those who are farther from that. They have completely immersed themselves in the lifestyle of the false teachers. They have been ensnared by their sin. In some ways, though they have made a profession of faith, they give no evidence of it now. Jude says to them, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Jude says these people have hit the bottom. They are so deep in sin to the point their lives have been marred by it. And notice again, we still show them mercy. We don't write them off. We don't cast them away. We don't say, ah, whatever. We show them mercy, but with fear. What are we fearing, God? Well, maybe. I think we're to fear that we might fall in sin ourselves. You know, sometimes we get, people get so serious about helping somebody in sin, and the problem is they, they, they get wrapped up in the sin. I mean, I, you know, I mean, not to pick out one sin in particular, just the first thing that comes to my mind. I, I, I know one guy in particular who, who starts off and he's so biblical in his orientation and his preaching is so well, but then, then he befriends some homosexuals thinking in his mind he's going to witness to them. He's going to lead them to Christ and help them come to this lifestyle and instead he moves to the position of saying that lifestyle is okay. 
And what happened? He got too close. He didn't go in with fear and trembling, thinking there's a temptation for me to, to, to be compromised. I have to, yes, I want to show them love and I want to show them mercy, but there is a fear and a trepidation that's there. And he got caught into it. Jude says, go after the person, but remember the situation. And he uses the imagery of soiled underwear. Not a very pleasant image. If someone soils themselves, are you going to help clean them up? Yes. But let's be honest, you're going to work real hard at keeping your hands clean, aren't you? That's basically what Jude is saying here. He says, he says, you know, it's not just, I mean, they're covered in the excrement of their sin. You do not want to be tainted with that. But you still go and you show them mercy. And how does all, all this gel with what Jesus and Paul say about sometimes just kicking somebody out of the church? I mean, for example, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, Though absent in the body, I am present in the spirit, and if present, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a vile thing. It's a guy who is having an adulterous relationship with his stepmom, claiming to be Christ, claiming to be super spiritual in this. He says, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. How is that showing mercy? That's what some of us think, right? Well, it's merciful in that it shows the person the seriousness of their sin. You understand, when, when the confrontation comes to the point when, when the person's not repenting, they don't want to hear anything, and you have to say, we can't allow you to still be a member here. A, that doesn't mean that we don't talk to them. doesn't mean we don't pray for them. doesn't mean we don't even invite them back to the church to sit under the teaching and to experience fellowship. It just means we have to say, we're drawing a line in the sand so that you understand the seriousness of your sin. You are so unrepentant, we're not even sure if you're really a Christian or not. We want you to wake up to this and see where you're at and where you're headed. What could be more merciful than that? Just say, well, it's okay, go on. Go, go on to hell. Because I'm uncomfortable telling you that you're sinning? That's not merciful. That's selfish. That's selfish. And Jude says, don't be selfish. Sacrifice and love show real mercy. Not by seeing the people that Satan is trying to pick off that are our brothers and sisters and going over and just stepping over the body and continuing on our merry way or kicking them while they're down or trying to put a bullet in their head to put them out of their misery. No, he says you pick them up and you throw them over your shoulder and you keep advancing against the enemy. You show mercy to them and help them press on in the fight of faith. I close with this. In 1993, Dr. R. Albert Moeller came to the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, as its president. When he went to that seminary, things were not good. You would have found very few Bible-believing faculty members at the school. You would have found very few who actually believed in the inerrancy of Scripture, very few that would have believed in the fullness of what the Bible taught about the person and work of Jesus Christ. And yet for years they held off any discussion, real discussion of theology by saying things like this. Let's not squabble over the Bible and doctrine. Let's just go do missions and evangelism. When Moeller arrived and presided over the first convocation chapel at the beginning of the academic year, he preached a sermon called, Don't just do something, stand there. Don't just do something, stand there. And his message was essentially this. It doesn't matter if we go out and trying to evangelize the missions because we don't have a message that's going to save anyone. We've lost the gospel. Therefore, don't just go do something, 
Stand there. Stand on the Bible. Stand on its truth. Stand on the gospel. Stand on Jesus and the truth about Him. Believe it. Hold on to it. Cherish it. Fight for it. And then we can go do something. Then we can go to a lost and dying world. Then we'll actually have a message that will be good to proclaim. Friends, that's the message of Jude. Jude is calling us to be contentious Christians, but he's calling us to be contentious about the right things and in the right way. He is calling us to be people with conviction about the faith once delivered, people who care about the truth, who believe in the truth, and who teach the truth. He is calling us to fight the fight of faith that was delivered for all time and to do so with tenacity and mercy. Not just throwing punches, not, 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 just, not just going like a Jack Dempsey, but showing mercy to those who have already fallen to it by guarding humbly our own hearts that we don't fall into it. This morning, Jude is calling all of us to fight for the faith, a faith that is true and glorious and humbling and encouraging and is able to save even the foulest sinner. So loved ones, let's join together and let's fight for the faith. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your word. God, we are thankful that we are not left to ourselves to come up with our own ideas about you, to come up with what should be the faith and what should not be the faith. God, you have given us your word, which Peter says is everything that we need for life and godliness. So, Father, help us to understand it. God, help us to actually read it and seek to, comp to comprehend it, to store it up in our hearts that we might not sin against you. God, may we do all that we can in living the Christian life to fight for the faith that you have entrusted to us. That we ourselves might remain holy and useful to you. That, God, your church might remain pure and undefiled. And that, Father, ultimately we might be able to have a message that is actually good news to this city and the world. We ask all this for the sake of Christ and in his name. Amen.